house. We have Rick, one of the pastors here, and glad to be with you as we are, are going to open God's Word for a bit, and then we're going to sing for a while towards the end again, a bunch of Christmas songs. Uh, this evening, we're going to continue. If you were here last Sunday, we did a passage from the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, and we're going to continue in Luke, in Luke chapter 2, and we're calling this, this sermon Bright Christmas because through Christmas, you get the dawning of indestructible joy. Joy that cannot be destroyed. And uh, on Sunday, whether you're here or not, it's okay. If you weren't, uh, we were asking the question of, is Christmas for those who are grieving? And we said, actually, the very reason Jesus came at Christmas was because of sorrow. And he came to be the solution to our sorrows. But one of the verses we read at the end of Luke chapter 1 said, Uh, Not only does he come to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, but he came to guide our feet into the path of peace. So not only does he come to deal with sorrow and suffering and pain, but on the positive side, he he comes to lead us into peace. And let's see uh, what this message of peace is all about from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20, if you want to read along. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. This is a pretty famous story in which the shepherds and the angels and Mary, the mother of Jesus, all interact. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly angels appeared with the first angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord told told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned to their flock, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. You know, verse... 14 is pretty famous in a lot of Christmas songs, especially angels we have heard on high, where uh, it says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. Why do the angels sing this song? What they're declaring is God's glory, glory to God, giving glory to God, pointing out that his majestic power and his personal presence has been revealed at Christmas time. And the result of that is peace on earth and praise for God and great joy for people. But I love the fact that in their declaring that this is the story we are given, they don't really just state it. Did you notice that? It says, 
suddenly a great company of heavenly angels appeared with the first angel, and they're actually singing. This heavenly, it's like a choir is what that means. So the way that we hear this is in a song. The reality of what God will do isn't merely a statement of information, but it's a song for the heart. The reality of what God will do and what he did at Christmas is best expressed in this all-out singing that the angels do. The revelation of God's peace is apparently best expressed through a song. You've probably heard this before. For many years, people have talked about the healing power of music. In fact, even elite universities have dedicated millions of dollars in faculty and student time to studying how can music heal people in some way. John Hopkins University has the John Hopkins Center for Music and Medicine. Psychology Today has articles about does music have healing powers. You can listen to TED Talks about the healing power of music. And Harvard Health Blog by Harvard Medicine has articles on healing through music which describe evidence-based outcomes of music therapy that do measurable uh, help to people who have experienced invasive surgical procedures. It can help restore people's lost speech, reduce the side effects of cancer treatment, aids in pain relief, and improves the quality of life of dementia patients. Music therapy. Some of you might want to consider that. It seems like a lucrative career. Every week, I have at least one conversation uh, with a man named Andre at Gray House. Maybe you've seen him there, if you've been. He always has headphones on and broken glasses and a headband. He's about 60 years old, and he always carries around a handwritten playlist of music that he's actually listening to in headphones. And the one that he shows me almost every single week is a playlist simply entitled Healing. And each song on his playlist, he has a certain song that he designates for different parts of humanity, uh, parts of who we are. So for the body, he says, here's a song for healing the body. He has another song for healing the mind. He has another song for healing the emotions. He has a particular song that he plays to heal, that he hopes will heal his brother who has lung cancer. And he'll play a song, and then he'll ask me, do you, do you feel it? Do you feel the healing? Do you feel it? Now, when he does that, the headphones are still on his head, not mine, so I usually can't actually hear the song. But the way he thinks is that I can hear what he hears. Now, most people who see Andre think that he's a mentally ill homeless man who disrupts a coffee shop. Sometimes. But I actually consider Andre a friend now. Every week he comes up to me, and, and though he has very little, he just got a new Kindle, and he wants to share it with me. And the thing is, every time I'm there, he wants to share a new song to say, do you feel it? The healing. And all the books on his Kindle that he's been given are what he calls holy books. They're all the religions of the world. And it really hit me today when I was talking to him just this morning that Andre gets something so deeply about the human heart and the desires that we have in this world, that things are, are so broken. And what he's listening to music and he's reading books. He wants spiritual power and the words of songs to heal all the brokenness that he's seen. And though you and I may not try to address things the way Andre does in our search for peace and healing and joy, many of us carry the same longing in our hearts, don't we? For a power to heal us, for something to bring peace to our world, to something, something to give us a lasting joy that never fades. That's what Andre does when he walks around sharing his songs with people. 
That's what he wants. He wants to share in the joy of some kind of peace and healing. And the angel song that we just read in Luke 2.14 declares that this reality through a song has become true at Christmas. This desire has become a reality at Christmas. And yet you and I, I think, and many of us struggle with this continual challenge, though, that to actually sing that song, to praise God from the depths of our hearts, is very difficult because the peace that he promises to bring is often the thing that feels most elusive to us. Peace. How many of us, when we're like, Do you, are you at peace? Completely, totally, you feel at peace. How many would raise your hands? And especially maybe right now in the month of December with all of its final exams and papers to write and projects to complete and uh, travel plans to make and gifts to buy and family drama to navigate, sleep to catch up on. It can all add up to thinking that, you know, peace is a few days around Christmas when I go home. Peace is a few days when I don't have to deal with my normal circumstances. But the claim that God makes about peace is that he says this is peace for the whole earth. This is peace that lasts, and I will lead you on the path of peace and joy. What he's saying is, do you want peace? Really, it's not elusive anymore. It's not elusive anymore. It comes to us through the salvation God gives us at Christmas. The peace that God gives at Christmas marks the dawning of indestructible joy because the peace that he gives can't be taken away. It's the beginning of a constant and unfading joy that's always with us in any and every circumstance. And so how do we get it? How do we get that? Well, the answer seems to be we let God guide us into Christmas. And not just the day that we open presents. I mean, Christmas, the heart of Christ who's with us always. Luke 2, 8 to 20, I think shows us some gifts that God gives us, three gifts at Christmas, the gift of his peace and his pleasure, the gift of good news and great joy, and the gift of treasuring and pondering. And so here's the thing, the first thing, the gift of his peace and his pleasure. Look, if we're going to talk about this song that the angels are singing, glory to God in the highest of heavens and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests, or peace on the, for those with whom he is pleased, then we want to ask the question, what exactly is meant by peace? If we're going to receive a gift from God, we probably want to know what it is because he's defining it for us. And these verses are telling us that his peace is for the whole earth, but it rests on those with whom he's pleased. So we probably want to know, well, who does God give favor to? Who is he pleased with? I think that for you and I, the way that we often understand peace today, the way we think about it on a regular basis, is to have a trouble-free life. Peace means no troubles, no conflicts, no quarrels, no difficulties, no problems, no pressures, no pain. If only I didn't have so much, in a way, we might say. So many exams, so much to do, I didn't get sick. Uh, if I had more time to spend with God, I would, be, uh, I would be at peace. But because I have so little time, I have little peace. But peace isn't merely the absence of conflict. It's not merely the absence of troubles. It's the presence of all that is good. True and lasting peace in Scripture is the presence of all that is good. And that's why the Bible will repeatedly say the most fundamental and important peace that we can ever have is peace with God. The fact that the Christmas story of God is God coming to gift us peace means you and I don't currently have it. 
if this is something God seemed to think is so necessary for him to do, it's because he's saying, you don't have it. We don't currently experience it. And in part, it's because we've never fully been able to address the root of what causes all the problems and troubles in our lives in the first place. It seems to me, seems to me that the scriptures are, are telling us repeatedly that there's a war going on, but inside of us in particular, in the spiritual realm in particular, and the, one of the definitions of peace is that this war will end. There will actually be an absence of conflict and hatred and hostility, but that starts with having the presence of God, the very reality of knowing Him. The root of our problems and troubles are that we are not well with God. We are not well with God. We are at war with Him. We are not well with Him. We're at war with Him. And what's the war over? What is the thing that we're in contention with God about? Isn't it about who gets to control our lives? Who's really in charge of everything? Is it Him or is it me? Who gets to direct the way things ought to go? The basic problem of humanity, all the way back in Genesis 3, the very third chapter of the Bible, tells us that the problem, this is the problem that humanity faces. The natural human heart desires to be king. We want our own authority. We want to be the sole author and decider of our lives. And this automatically makes us hostile to God because, well, he claims to be the Lord of life. He designed us to function in a certain way, and when we break that function, we break peace with Him. Until we see that our instinctive nature is to fight God or have hostility towards His authority over things, we won't really understand one of the main wellsprings of human behavior. We are committed to the idea, aren't we? I, I think I am many times. We are committed to the idea that the only way we'll be happy is if we are fully and wholly in charge of our own lives. It's the only way to be happy is if I get to say how everything goes. But in the end, this is essentially a self-focused desire for command and control, and it leads us into conflict with other people, doesn't it? Because everybody else wants the same thing, but they want it in a different way and you might be getting in the way. There's no peace on earth, the Bible is saying, because there's no peace with God. So how, we might think, do I really express hostility towards God? Well, how might that look? How does expressing hostility towards God look? And there's many, many ways, but let's look at just two. One I'll call the non-religious hostility, and that's for people who don't have a religion. They might not Overt, uh, overtly express any desire to be a part of any religion, but they do overtly express something like this. I want to live any way that I want, and I don't want what God wants. I don't even care maybe if he exists, but I will do whatever I would like to do. And this person takes the things that God created, the mind and sex and food and pleasure and happiness, and uses all of those things in a way to gain their own desires with them even at cost to other people or at cost to themselves. God doesn't define how they think of education or marriage or health or hope. And that one might seem obvious, and maybe some of you are there too. Well, I don't have a religion. I don't follow God. And you're expressing the same thing the rest of us express, except some of us do it in a more religious way. 
Because the other flip side of that is that there's a religious way to be hostile to God. And religious people can be hostile to God, except it just is more covert. It doesn't seem as obvious. Because we're religious. We go to church. We're good people. The religious person says, look, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what the Bible says. And then God has to bless me and give me the good life that I desire. But see, it's still about you and, and me and our own desires. It's an effort to control God. I'll obey so God will bless me. I'll do what he says so he'll give me what I want. But in essence, we're bribing him. You're still hoping that if you're good enough, God will reward you which still puts the main thrust of life back on you. And God is just a pawn in the scheme of your life. So in both the non-religious and religious strategies, we're hostile to God because neither of us is looking to him as the one who's sovereignly in control of all things and is the one alone who can bring salvation from twisted desires. Our human tendency is to look to ourselves to make life okay. But then how then? How do we get peace? How do we get peace with God? Well, as with all conflict resolution, you have to begin by owning your own part. How do you do this with God? Well, you may think, okay, the obvious thing is I got to tell God, I got to own up to the bad things that I've done. And if I own up to the bad things I've done, then God will forgive me and then I'll be fine with him. But the way that this works is even then we can do something right, like confess, but do it with wrong motives. And there's a big difference between gaining peace with God by looking to the peace that he seeks to give us and trying to do it again out of our own efforts. What if we learn to confess this? I've done bad things in seeking to be the one who's in control of my own life, but I've also done good things in seeking to be the savior of my own life too. I continually try to assert my independence from God either by doing what I say is right for me, apart from what he says is good, or by doing what he says is good, and in the process trying to prove that I'm worthy, that I've performed enough, that I've made myself good enough that he must accept me. So either way, when I do bad things or when I do good things, I can still do them because I'm simply trying to make myself acceptable or worthy of love. This is why we don't have peace with God. But in our confession, we have to come to a place to say, Lord, I come now and I rest myself on your grace alone. My best efforts will fail me. My worst efforts condemn me. I cannot save myself. I'm not wise enough to be the decider of my life. I turn away from my old way of living and I come to rest in what you have done for me in sending Jesus at Christmas to overcome my hostility and to give me peace. This is how you make peace with God. You confess that all you can do is rely on the peace that he brings to us. This is what he did at Christmas. See, there's this Christmas passage in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says that Jesus is the prince of peace. And the, the word prince of peace, the word for prince, could easily be translated ruler or governor. What that means is Jesus is the ruler of peace. Under his leadership, he can actually orchestrate peace because he has the power and the fairness and the justice to bring about real peace. He's the ruler who will, through his own decisions and policies, actually do what is right and just and fair and true for all people. And this term seems to stand counter to if you and I think we're the rulers of our peace, if I get to make up what will be the good life, 
well, then we're going to be at contention with the one who's the prince, the ruler of peace. Because peace, the Bible is telling us over and over again, actually, peace is not something that you and I can rule over. It's only something that you can receive and participate in. It, in uh, towards the end of the Gospel of John, in John 14, Jesus is about to go to the cross and he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give it to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, nor let yourselves be afraid. Jesus says, peace I give to you. And then he says, not as the world gives, I give to you. Well, what does Jesus give that the world can't give? In the context of John 14, Jesus says, when he leaves his peace with his disciples, he meant the Holy Spirit, his own personal presence, God with you personally. And what does he do? He says the Spirit will teach you. He will teach you all the things that I've given him. And what does the Spirit teach? How to lead you in the way of peace. One of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. That's what the Spirit, one of the things that the Spirit does. But you may wonder, well, is this just an internal thing? If I learn what it is to confess to God and receive his peace, is it just this internal reality? Well, no, because the Spirit goes and affects all sorts of all parts of the world through his people. This is why Jesus also says in Matthew 5 that if you have the peace of God, you become a peacemaker. Matthew 5, 9 said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And peacemakers are those who, through having made peace with God, are empowered to reconcile relationships with all others. Remember how he said that if you don't have peace with God, you, don't, you won't be able to have true peace with anyone else? Well, if you have peace with God, you can become an agent of peace with everyone else. Peacemakers are people who, through making peace with God, you know, what, what does it take to actually be a peacemaker? You have to be incredibly humble, actually able to admit, admit that you have flaws and weaknesses. You have to learn to surrender your pride rather than saying, I'm in control, I'll get what I want, I will do my thing. You have to work with a whole bunch of other people for the best for all. Rather than being controlling in every situation or needing that, we instead focus our efforts on loving one another and giving ourselves away for the sake of the common good. These are incredibly necessary skills to navigate conflicts, but they're also things that you and I struggle with on a daily basis. But he's saying, no, Christians can actually fan out into the world and be peacemakers, those who bring God's peace to other communities. And so if you make peace with God, confessing your need of him, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. That's what Christmas is about. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that Jesus himself is our peace, and he comes to make groups of people that were divided against one another now back together, brought together, no longer any hostility between them. And how did he do it? It says in verse 17 of Ephesians 2, Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. For, ne for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. All people who are made to have peace with God through the power of the Spirit, renewing our inner lives, now share in that Spirit worldwide and become peacemakers so that even groups of people that used to be hostile to one another are now brought back together in unity. But you may wonder then, okay, the gift of peace, but how do I really get that? The second gift that we see in Luke 2 is this gift of good news and great joy. 
because you still might have to wonder. So peace on earth to those on whom God's favor rests, on those with whom he's pleased. Well, how do you know if God is pleased with you? If we just said that you couldn't work your way back to God, then what's it going to take? How is God going to be pleased with you? When we listen to what the angels and told the shepherds in Luke 2, we see that they not only declare God's peace has come into the world through the birth of Jesus, but they tell us the way to receive it. That God opens our hearts to receive what he gives. And we know that we are living under God's pleasure. How do you know? How do you know that God is pleased with you? You're one of the people who receives the good news. That's it. But it's maybe more profoundly difficult than we think. In Ephesians 2.17, it said, he came and preached peace. Do you know who the people are who get to be at peace with God? The people who receive the message from God that there actually is peace. Luke 2.10 put it this way. The angel said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today a Savior has been born to you, and this is a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And the shepherds go and find out that this is true. But why is it so important to you or to us that the angels would say, I've brought you a specific message that's to be preached to you? And here's why. Here's why this matters. Because too often the gospel of Jesus Christ is treated more like good advice than good news. Too often it's treated like good advice than good news. And there's a world of difference between the two. As one pastor pointed out, Advice is counsel about what you must do, but news is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen, but news urges you to recognize that something has already happened. Advice says it's all up to you to act, but news says someone else has acted. The gospel is good news and not good advice. There's all sorts of things that the scriptures command us to do. But the thing is, they're not really worth doing if the scriptures and the story aren't true already. If what God requires of you in order to have peace and great joy is to do something, then why did the angel messengers, why did, why did God said angels, which the word angels actually simply means messenger, why did he send messengers and not advisors? Because an advisor would say, here's what you must do to bring about peace on earth. But a messenger tells you what has already happened. Here's what God has done to bring about peace and joy on earth. The only thing to do then is to go and see, is it really true? The only thing left to do if there's nothing for you to do is to see if what has been done has actually been done. The shepherds discover that it's true because God said there's a sign for you. You'll go and find a baby in a manger and they go and find there he is. The biblical Christmas stories are accounts about what actually happened in history. They're not myths. They're not fables. They're not self-help stories inspiring you with examples of how you can live well and you get your best life now. That would be called moralism or religion. Pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. Follow this advice. Get your act together. Then you'll have peace. But the gospel narratives are telling you not what you should do, but what God has done for you. The birth of Jesus, the Son of God, at the beginning of the Christmas story, is telling you it's an announcement. And the announcement is this. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. There is no way in which you can bring about peace. 
but God has come to save you, and in his salvation is everlasting peace. Look, so many of us who already call ourselves Christians still treat the gospel and salvation as if it's just offering good advice rather than good news. Even the way that many churches uh, maybe unintentionally talk about and proclaim salvation is as if it's advice. It's something you have to perform, to struggle for, to wrestle with. You have to display certain gifts or abilities. You have to obey certain rules. You have to know certain amounts of theology. But the gospel's different. Good advice says it's up to you to accept God. But you know what the good news is? Actually, God came to earth to accept you. So much it's I've got to accept God and I've got to have a certain feeling with God. I have to accept him. But the, God, the good news is, no, 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 you couldn't. But I could. The good news is I came to accept you. What does this mean for you and me? That Christianity is not primarily self-improvement or inspiration or guidance for life. Of course, it has massive implications for how you and I live every day. But it is, first of all, a message that says you must be saved and you're not saved in the slightest by what you can do, but rather by what he has done. That is the message of Christmas. The foundation of your faith is really, I believed a news report about what happened in history. God showed up and did what I could not do. And he has longed to give you his personal and peaceful presence. This is what Jesus did. He said, I've seen your suffering world, your lack of personal peace, and I've entered your world to defeat what stands against you. But one last thing that he comes to give out of this gift, the gift of treasuring and pondering. Here's what it says in Luke 2, verse 10 again, verse we just read. But the angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. There's this one tiny but very significant word. And for many of your Bible translations, they often skip over it. But it's the word behold. And it's a crucial but very helpful word. And it can mean something like look or see. But it also carries a lot more gravity than those two words. Behold. You can hear it almost. There's a significance behind it. We could literally translate what the angels say as, Do not be fearing. Be perceiving the good news. Do not be afraid. Behold. Good news. Do not be fearing. Be perceiving. Another way to translate behold would be perceiving. To behold means to perceive, which means pay close attention to. Take it in. Rejoice in it. This is something very substantive for you. And in this case, the angels are saying that it's not enough to know that there's good news, but you actually have to receive it. You have to behold it. You have to perceive its significance and welcome it into your life, into your heart. There's two groups of people in this passage that demonstrate a kind of rep response we're, we're supposed to have, the shepherds and Mary, the mother of Jesus, because both of them uh, go beyond. And here in Luke chapter 2, there's 13 times that some word associated with see or hear is used. So again, it's historical. People went and saw and heard these things. But the point of it leads you to Mary and the shepherds who say, but Mary treasured and pondered these things, and the shepherds praised and glorified God. 
treasured and pondered, praised and glorified. They didn't say, oh, interesting, angels. They didn't say, yes, God ripped open the sky and spoke to me and told me about a baby in a manger, which is a strange place to put a baby, but I'm not going to go check it out. The shepherds glorify and praise God because of what they've seen and heard, it says in verse 20. And in verse 19, Mary treasures and ponders all these things in her heart, it says. Mary doesn't know exactly what to make of all of this, but she does know that the result of it is to worship and to treasure what has happened. She pondered, which means think deeply about this. Think very deeply about this. And you know what that means is to think deeply about anything takes a lot of time and a lot of patience. Maybe the, one of the best things you and I can do this Christmas is to let the realities of God's peace reshape our thoughts and our imagination, our giving, our receiving, our resting, our relaxing, our relating. Mary didn't just let the moment pass by. The shepherds didn't just let the moment pass by, but they let God fill up their thinking and their imagining. The good news that there was actually peace that could change the outcome of the, of the history of the world was present. And they believed it because they saw the signs. They oriented, they started to orient their hope and their life around glorifying God, praising God, which means putting him first, not themselves. No longer did they want themselves to be the ruler of their lives. Just as many of you are filling your minds with what you study right now uh, and what you're thinking about, you're perceiving the shape of a subject and you're letting it guide you into more knowledge and even later into a career. It's the same idea. It's hard to treasure and ponder something. It's easier to hear the gospel and just say, that's interesting. In our world, it's easier at Christmas to ponder and treasure almost anything but Christmas. There's sales to go buy stuff. There's food to be eaten. There's travels to make. There's choices to decide. But the thing is, Christmas is saying salvation has come to you. Will you treasure it? Christmas is so much based on what we pay attention to. And so the question is, will we spend time treasuring and pondering the gift that God came to bring. The good news probably won't actually lead us to great joy until we ponder what Jesus came to do for us, to fill up our imagination and our thinking and treasure it as the most valuable gift we could receive and that he came to give. Here's what it says. Do not be fearing, be perceiving. And it means that when you perceive the good news, you stop fearing. You get to a place over time where fear dissipates more and more from your life. And I don't know about you, but I think what Scripture leads me to and what I see in my own life is the greatest fear that humanity faces is rejection. That's why so many of us seek control in our lives. That's why so many of us try to help others perceive us in a certain way. Because we fear being rejected. We're so busy perceiving what will make us acceptable that we miss out on perceiving the one who's accepted us already. I'm too busy trying to fill that into my life when what Jesus is doing is filling up acceptance in me already. He's already given it. 
He's already come to bring that at Christmas time. If we no longer, this is what the gospel is saying. The good news is if you no longer have to prove yourself, if you no longer have to worry about being rejected and unloved, fearing that your failures will ruin your life, that you are unlikable, unacceptable, or unforgivable, you no longer have to worry about that because God has reached out to you with a message of peace and joy, then receiving the gospel won't just be an abstract idea. It will be a believing faith, a holding on to something in the universe that is far bigger than you and I. It'll be holding on to Christ himself, knowing then that result of this is the diminishment of fear and entry into freedom and joy and knowing God himself. As long as you and I seek to save ourselves, as long as we seek to have control and to earn uh, our own self-worth or construct our own identity or keep pursuing cheap peace, we will be haunted by fear. Fear that you won't be good enough or overcome the bad. But if you come to rest in Christ, if you come to know the peace that he came to, to give you, That it's not by your own merit. It's not by what you do. But it's what he's done and given for you. If you pay attention, if you hold on to that, if you perceive it with every fiber of your being, it actually starts to produce joy because it isn't good advice. It's just good news. It's already been done for you. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Here's the thing about Christmas. It amazes me. If we're in a war at times with God about who's in control, when God himself chooses to show up as an infant, then he chooses the weakest form of humanity. And in a way, when God surrendered himself to us, we killed him. But when we surrender ourselves to him, he promises life and joy and peace. God didn't just give us information or advice about trying to get ourselves back up to a place of peace or joy. He wrote himself into the history of humanity in order to bring about the peace and joy that you and I never could have. He was judged instead of us that we may be able to judge our lives saying, it truly is well with me all the time and in any circumstance, hard or easy, difficult or beautiful. Because behind and underneath everything stands an indestructible joy. The angels are saying to the shepherds and Mary, do you want relief from your striving, from your fears, from trying to attain peace, which is so elusive? Well, behold, look at Christmas. Look at what Christ did. To the degree that you behold it, you grasp it, you ponder it, you treasure it, you value it in your own heart, in your mind, and in your life, to the degree that you do that, your fears will decrease and your joy and peace will actually increase. I want to invite you to join me in a prayer right now, a prayer about these things before we sing again to the God who came to save us. Would you pray with me? It'll be on the screen, and you can read it out loud together. Dear Lord, In this season of giving and getting, I so easily overlook your gifts to me. Thank you for so many reasons to celebrate. Thank you for a future filled with hope because it rests in your hands. For peace of mind when I keep my eyes on you. 
for joy beyond all my circumstances. I'm grateful for what I often take for granted, for a place to live, clothing, food, and all the good things that you daily provide. I appreciate those people put into my life who know my faults yet still love me. Thank you for their love and support. Thank you for being with me in life's trials, drawing me closer to yourself and teaching me to trust more each day. Most of all, dear Lord, thank you for coming to this earth to live, to love, to die, and to live again. Loving Father, help us remember the birth of Jesus, that we may share in the song of the angels, the joy of the shepherds, and the heart of Mary. Close the door of hate, and open the door of love all over the world. Deliver us from evil by the peace which Christ brings and teach us to treasure him with clear hearts. Lord, we thank you that this is what you come to promise us at Christmas and this evening and throughout this season, we seek to hold on to the peace that you've given to us, the joy that results from it. Lord, help our hearts to treasure and to ponder these things as we sing with you and to you again. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen.